and we're incredibly thankful to um, the RTD for providing that to the community and to us. And so today, as we do sometimes, we welcome a member of the RTD staff to do the introduction. We're very fortunate to have Andrew Kane, who's the political editor of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and I can't imagine he has anything else to do today <laughs> besides come and introduce a speaker here at the VHS. So without further ado, Andrew. Thank you, Paul. It has been something of a little hectic morning over there at the Times-Dispatch, but we made it here under the wire. Um, I'm very glad to be here today on behalf of the Times-Dispatch to introduce today's program. And uh, before I introduce Mr. Johnson, I just want to make a couple of quick asides. First of all, uh, reading Mr. Johnson's book here was a particular pleasure for me for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, as a Randolph-Macon graduate, it was great fun to read about the acerbic uh, Mr. Randolph, and uh, who was a titan in Congress at the age of 29, and also to read about his colleague and protector, Nathaniel Macon, who was Speaker of the U.S. House some 200 years ago. Uh, secondly, as the politics editor in the newsroom at the Times-Dispatch, it was heartening to read Mr. Johnson's book, and it's a reminder of all the talented and accomplished people from across the political spectrum that we're so fortunate to have uh, serving the Commonwealth. So with that, on to uh, our introduction. Uh, one of the most eccentric and accomplished politicians in all of American history, John Randolph of Roanoke led a life marked by controversy. The long-serving Virginia congressman and architect of Southern conservatism grabbed headlines with his prescient comments, public brawls, and clashes with every president from John Adams to Andrew Jackson. The first biography of Randolph in nearly a century John Randolph of Roanoke provides a full account of the powerful Virginia planter's hard-charging life and its influence on the formation of conservative politics. John Randolph of Roanoke tells the story of a young nation and the unique philosophy of a Southern lawmaker who defended America's agrarian tradition and reveled in his own controversy. David Johnson, a graduate from the College of William and Mary and from the T.C. Williams School of Law at the University of Richmond, serves as Deputy Attorney General for Health, Education, and Social Services in Virginia. He is the author of two biographies, Douglas Southall Freeman, which was published in 2002, and John Randolph of Roanoke, which just came out this past May. So please join me in welcoming David Johnson, who will speak to us today about John Randolph of Roanoke. Well, thank you, and good afternoon. And allow me to thank the scheduling geniuses at the Virginia Historical Society for booking me on a day like today. Uh, the thud you heard this morning was John Randolph. <laughs> rolling over again. But I will tell you, though, that I, I wrote this speech uh, two weeks ago, so I have not put anything in. Uh, about today. Um, <clears throat> and I spent the last 10 years with John Randolph, and a lot of people have asked why. <laughs> and the answer is, is that today, as during his life, John Randolph defies indifference. There has never been seen a man quite like him, so eloquent and acerbic, so shrewd and so troubled. His first debate, public debate, was with Patrick Henry. He was Jefferson's ally and then his opponent, the bitter enemy of Madison, critic of Monroe, the unrelenting antagonist of King John Adams, <laughs> and then of John Quincy Adams, who he said, quote, had outdone his father's outdoings. <laughs> he aimed a pistol at Henry Clay, and tried to do the same to Daniel Webster. Webster is like everybody else, he said, except there's just more of him. <laughs> he had little use for John C. Calhoun, a man he dubbed a thrice double ass. <laughs> Yet Henry Adams marveled at the mystery of affection and faith that Randolph inspired in a host of friends. Contemporaries 
felt the need to describe him, <clears throat> and the words have rendered him into a walking adjective. He was a flowing gargoyle of vituperation, <laughs> a phenomenon amongst men. He entered the house chamber with his spurs jingling, several of his hounds close about his feet. His hat would be pulled down to his eyes, and the heel of a whip tapped in his hand. He had no shape, but he was forked, a tall, spare, and somewhat emaciated figure. He seemed to unfold in stages. When he stood up, one wrote, you did not know where he was to end. <laughs> his hands were as fair and delicate as any girl's, but with fingers which might have served as models for those of a goblin page. Randolph's forefinger alone elicited numerous comments, for it was his Excalibur, seemingly blinding and slashing opponents at whom he pointed it. The disjointed mosaic that formed his body would not long hold a stare of gawkers, for the face that stared back was even more arresting. The beardless face, marked with the lineaments of boyhood but mocked by wrinkles, the black hair, the one tangible indication of his Indian heritage, and the lips indigo, indicating days of suffering and nights of pain. Dominating his face were the eyes. They were described as brilliant beyond description. They were small and dark, probably hazel-colored, but often called black by those on whom he cast his penetrating look. Yet his eyes were but precursor to his voice. The voice squeaked like a boy's just before breaking into manhood. To some hearers, it was exquisite vocal music. To others, a clear, sharp, staccato voice that spoke of chastity. It was a voice that caused one wit to conjecture that he was, quote, either by nature or manual operation fixed for an Italian singer. <laughs> he entered Congress in 1799 with a reputation, a Randolph of the Randolphs of Virginia. Born in 1773, who had studied at Princeton, Columbia, and William Mary without having obtained a degree. <laughs> who slashed a crimson streak across Philadelphia saloons and brothels while purporting to study law. Who had already fought one duel and who longed to fight in the French Revolution. As a boy, he had been spirited away on horseback just ahead of invading British troops led by Benedict Arnold. From that moment on, the American Revolution marked him. He was in New York during the ratification debate and later spent days watching the newly formed Congress in session. His anti-federalist sentiments developed early. I saw what Washington did not see, he wrote about the Constitution, the poison under its wings. Now he was in Congress, barely 26 years old. This stripling, Abigail Adams fumed, comes full to the brim with his own conceit and all Virginia democracy. He chatters away like a magpie. Randolph ignored Federalist carping. Quote, we are determined, he wrote, to pay the debt off, to repeal internal taxes, to retrench every unnecessary expense, military, naval, and civil, and to enforce economy. Randolph mastered the men of the house as skillfully as he mastered his blooded horses, becoming Jefferson's confidant and majority leader. His legislative accomplishments were the achievements of Jefferson's first term, elimination of internal taxes, payment of the national debt, financing for the Louisiana Purchase, and repeal of the Federalist Judiciary Act. How did Randolph, at such a young age, with his boyish looks and piping voice, command an assembly of accomplished statesmen. Part of his authority came from serving as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Part was due to his close relationship with Jefferson. Part was his mastery of legislative rules and procedures. Most, however, was due to his assertive personality. It was a style that alternatively provoked fear or instilled confidence. Jefferson wrote that Randolph's abilities, quote, gave him such advantages as to place him unrivaled as the leader of the House, and although not conciliatory to those whom he led, principles of duty and patriotism induced many of them to swallow the humiliations he subjected them to. Jefferson's comment reveals another source of Randolph's early influence. He linked every public issue with a higher principle. One principle about which he spoke frequently 
and at length was the concentration of power. Two years before John Marshall invented judicial review, Randolph warned of its dangers. Had federal judges the authority, Randolph asked, to declare laws unconstitutional. Quote, here is a new power of a dangerous and uncontrollable nature. The decision of a constitutional question must rest somewhere. Shall it be confided to men immediately responsible to the people or to those who are irresponsible? To me, it appears that the power which has the right of passing without appeal on the validity of your laws is your sovereign. Almost as quickly as Randolph rose, he fell and was alone in opposition. The Alpha was the Yazoo land fraud. In January 1795, the Georgia legislature transferred 35 million acres, known as the Yazoo land, to four land companies at a cost of one and a half cents per acre. The land giveaway was stunning in itself, but amazement turned to outrage when it was discovered that every member of the legislature who voted for the transfer had been bribed with shares in the Yazoo land companies. <laughs> the state of Georgia erupted in righteous indignation and voted out every corrupt legislator. The new legislature promptly rescinded the land transfers and burned the old law in a ceremony on the grounds of the state capitol, the spark ignited by reflecting the sun's rays through a glass. The hand of God, it was said, was alone sufficient to purge the state of this great sin. <laughs> Except, as the hated law burned, the Yazoo land companies were busily selling shares of real estate to innocent third-party purchasers. So the question was presented, who owns the land? The state of Georgia by rescinding the corrupt transfer, or the numerous purchasers who bought land from state-established land companies? Secretary of State James Madison crafted a settlement under which Georgia would cede the Yazoo territory to the United States for $1.2 million and a reserve of 5 million acres to satisfy other claimants. The recommendations were presented to Congress on February 7, 1804 for what was expected to be perfunctory review and speedy approval. Madison, however, failed to anticipate one contingency. A coiled whip awaited the Yazoo proposal. For two days, Randolph subjected the House, his own party, and the alliance of speculators and Republicans he dubbed Yazoo men to the verbal equivalent of being drawn and quartered. He wasted no time with parliamentary niceties. Quote, the contract being laid in corruption and fraud was null and void ab initio. Since the original grant being obtained by bribery and fraud, no right can vest under it. It is from great first principles to which the patriots of Georgia so gloriously appeal that we must look for aid in such extremity. Yes, extreme cases like this call for extreme remedies. Attorneys and judges do not decide the fate of empires. Randolph would thwart passage of the Yazoo settlement every session until his temporary absence from the House in 1814. Randolph's sure and vicious opposition did more, however, than just delay the bailout. It cracked the Jeffersonian alliance. Yazoo was followed in short order by failed impeachment trial of Justice Chase and the secret attempt by Jefferson to purchase Florida. The latter episode completed the break. This administration, Randolph wrote, may do what it pleases. Quote, it, federals fe it favors federal principles, and with the exception of a few great characters, federal men. Attack it upon this ground, and you are denounced for federalism, are told by these who agree with you in condemning the same measures, that you are ruining the Republican Party, that we must keep together. The old Republican Party is already ruined, past redemption. New men and new maxims are the order of the day." End quote. Randolph would alienate the new men and have no part of the new maxims. He took his stand, Henry Adams wrote, quote, a queer figure, booted, riding whip in hand, flying about the astonished statesmen and flinging one after the other, Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Madison, and dozens of helpless congressmen headlong into the mire. Jefferson pronounced him finished. The example of John Randolph, now the outcast of the world, he wrote, is a caution to all honest and prudent men 
to sacrifice a little of self-confidence and to go along with their friends, even though they sometimes think they are going wrong. Randolph would not go along, not with war against Great Britain, not with increased taxes or tariffs, not with expanding federal power, not with what he dubbed, quote, the holy Catholic church of expediency and existing circumstances. Far from being finished, Randolph was the tertium quid, the third something of American politics. As the unrelenting quid, Randolph opposed the War of 1812, which cost him a term in Congress, opposed federally funded internal improvements, and increased tariffs. But his speeches were never solely about pending issues. Always there was a principle upon which to expound. The people of this country, he said, setting the tone for his speeches, quote, if ever they lose their liberties, will do it by sacrificing some great principle of free government to temporary passion. There are certain great principles which, if they be not held inviolate at all seasons, our liberty is gone. If we give them up, it is perfectly immaterial what is the character of our sovereign, whether he is king or president, elective or hereditary, it is perfectly immaterial. We shall be slaves. Modern shorthand might label Randolph a conservative, but he was not an ideologue. The philosophy that emerges from his life, letters, and speeches is rooted in a half-indolent distaste for alteration, dedication to an agricultural society, love of local rights, and assertive individualism. He was no Democrat, little d, believing in limited suffrage lodged firmly in a landed gentry. He was a champion of individual liberty, though not of the natural rights espoused by Locke. He had a lifelong distrust of centralized power, hence his opposition to entanglements abroad and spendthrift government at home. He was a mix of realist and purist, disdainful of Kant, yet displaying a consistency that along with the legacy of Patrick Henry and the essays of Judge Spencer Roan and John Taylor of Caroline, created the Virginia doctrine that dominated the state's political, judicial, and philosophical life during the 19th century. It was a doctrine best expressed in Randolph's most famous and misunderstood declaration. Quote, I am an aristocrat. I love liberty. I hate equality. <laughs> the aristocracy to which Randolph referred, despite being a Randolph, was not a hereditary one. It was an aristocracy of cultured and civilized citizens who respected tradition, defended established institutions, and adhered to duty. It was an aristocracy symbolized on the great seal of Virginia by virtue with her foot on the body of tyranny. The virtue represented on the seal is the Latin translation of the Greek word arate, a word that expresses those characteristics of the self-determinative and self-reliant citizen. Thus, it was civic virtue, not equality, that defeated tyranny. Civic virtue required a rejection of the Lockean notion that all men were created equal in favor of the language of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which declared that all men were, quote, created equally free and independent. By stressing the equality of freedom and the necessity of civic virtue, Randolph sought to prevent the only state of life in which anything resembling equality of condition actually prevails, a state of savagery. Self-confined to an isolated minority, Randolph often fought alone, but that provided him an historical stage which delights a biographer. Quote, his manner of speaking is the most forcible I ever witnessed, an observer wrote, and his language elegant beyond description. Randolph utilized every weapon in the rhetorician's arsenal, taunting wit, black humor, foul invective, brilliant metaphors, literary imagery, historical allusions, pungent sarcasm, and debilitating derision. His close friend, Joseph Bryan, once reminded him, quote, I greatly wish you to remember what I've often told you. By God, with a little management, without too visibly altering your manners, you may place your foot upon the neck of any man you please, the president alone accepted. You are a colossus, but the colossus at Rhodes was blown down by wind. <laughs> the gentle warning went unheeded. Eyes blazing, voice piping, Randolph was James 3.6 incarnate, and the tongue is a fire, a whirl of iniquity. 
He could reduce the most laborious arguments to cogent phrases. A wasteful government agency was, quote, a moth in the public purse. An overreaching bill sought, quote, to cure the corns by cutting off the toes. An ill-conceived idea appeared, quote, in all the nakedness of infantile imbecility. Any member who dared brook a challenge would receive special attention. I looked at the gentleman from New York at that moment, Randolph said during one debate, quote, with the sort of sensation we feel in beholding a sprightly child meddling with edge tools, every moment expecting that he will cut off his fingers. He dismissed one bill as, quote, oscillating, hesitating, temporizing, tampering, and patching up. And a committee report was all, quote, preface, episode, prologue, and epilogue. He dubbed his colleagues, Robert Wright and John Ray, a right always wrong and a ray without light. <laughs> the flip-flopping Samuel Dexter was Mr. Ambidexter. He asserted that Secretary of State Robert Smith's only qualification for that office was, quote, he can spell. <laughs> and another Secretary of State, Edward Livingston, received a devastating broadside. He's brilliant but utterly corrupt. He shines and stinks like a rotten mackerel by moonlight. <laughs> Randolph commented that President Monroe, quote, came in upon no principles, and as he brought none with him, he will carry none out with him. <laughs> and when he heard the news that two former presidents had died on the same day, he commented, quote, and so old Mr. Adams is dead on the 4th of July, too, and leaving his son on the throne, this is euthanasia indeed. <laughs> they have killed Mr. Jefferson too on the same day, but I don't believe it. A member on the receiving end was well advised to use caution in attempting a comeback. Representative Philemon Beecher of Ohio three times interrupted Randolph with a motion for the previous question. Randolph paused, allowing the members to ready themselves and said, Mr. Speaker, quote, in the Netherlands, a man of small capacity with bits of wood and leather will, in a few moments, construct a toy that with the pressure of the finger and thumb will cry cuckoo, cuckoo. With less ingenuity and with inferior materials, the people of Ohio have made a toy that will, without much pressure, cry. Previous question, Mr. Speaker, previous question. <laughs> Randolph's opponents, one wrote, quote, had at least the gratification that they were abused in good English. <laughs> Henry Adams dubbed the House members of this era, quote, a mass of mediocrities, providing a rare instance in which he and Randolph were in agreement. Quote, Congress was always bad enough, Randolph wrote, but at present it out-Holland's Holland. A more despicable set was never gathered together. In all nature, I know nothing to which the assembled wisdom and virtue of our land can be assimilated but a fowl whose head has just been wrung off by a remorseless cook and whose peaceful yet awkward contortions excite at once our pity and our laughter. In this way, we flutter about, now tumbling into the water, now into the fire, to the amusement of the idle and the scandal of the grave. Randolph's speeches and letters during these years of isolated opposition were more than just entertainment and criticism. He set down markers of principle. Asking one of the states to surrender part of her sovereignty, he said, is like asking a lady to surrender part of her chastity. On another occasion, when I speak of my country, I mean the Commonwealth of Virginia. <laughs> On individual freedom, quote, the personal liberty of the citizen is in principle as much violated by compelling him to go 100 miles as 5,000 miles. And again, quote, an armed people must necessarily be a free people. All the parchment in their archives are of less force than a single musket and on hope and change. Quote, great changes to be beneficial 
must be gradual, not forced upon the people. Nature might be coaxed, but she would not be coerced. Always with Randolph's philosophical centricity came personal eccentricity, much the result of constant physical ailments. Quote, I can no longer do, he wrote, I can only suffer. He endured waves of blinding headaches and suffered from ailments in his lungs, kidneys, liver, stomach, and intestines. His body shook with spasms in his legs, arms, and chest. He complained of lumbago and rheumatism. He was laid low with scarlet fever and yellow fever. He most likely was impotent. He would go for days with insomnia, in turn begetting a paralyzing fatigue. Quote, I have not only descended from the dignity of human nature, he wrote, but of animal life and barely vegetable. He treated himself with calomel and magnesia before turning to laudanum, mercury, and morphine. Preeminent among all remedies was opium, to which Randolph turned when, quote, seized with the torments of the damned. At night he paced the halls, chillingly exclaiming, Macbeth hath murdered sleep. The culprit of Randolph's miseries was likely Kleinfelter syndrome, a condition caused by an additional X chromosome in males. Such exaggerated personality traits prompted questions about his sanity. Randolph suffered from severe bouts of melancholy, aggravated by his literal, uh, literal isolation at Roanoke and his figurative isolation in Washington. His emotions grew brittle, spawning a forlornness so intense that he wept. To him were accorded, quote, dark days when the evil genius predominated, and contrasting days when no one ever knew better how to events in countenance and matter, greater benevolence of heart. Those around him either politely lamented his, quote, un occasional unhappy state of mind, harshly dismissed him as partially deranged, or chuckled over the irony that he owned a homestead called Bizarre. <laughs> his fits could have been drug-induced or alcohol-related, but his manic and depressive symptoms manifesting in agitation, insomnia, uneven temper, persistent sadness, and feelings of hopelessness suggest a type of bipolar disorder. Whatever the cause, Randolph's life is filled with lapses into sinister peculiarity, followed by periods of normal behavior. A cousin's words offer both explanation and conclusion. Randolph was a man, he wrote, quote, endowed with two souls. A lighter side of Randolph's eccentricity was his habit of bringing hunting dogs onto the house floor. This he did until newly elected Speaker Henry Clay ordered the dogs removed. I labor under two great misfortunes, Randolph shrugged. One is that I can never understand the Honorable Speaker. The other is he can never understand me. Here Randolph's jest is not completely true. Both Randolph and Clay perfectly understood the other and therefore undertook a nearly 20-year battle on issues that could be taken from today's headlines. Not tomorrow's headlines. <laughs> Clay proposed that the United States recognize the Greeks in their struggle against the Ottoman Empire. Randolph responded with a series of questions. Is the nation, he asked, quote, to go on a crusade in another hemisphere? for the propagation of two objects as dear and delightful to my heart as to that of any gentleman, liberty and religion. If so, he warned, the nation was wandering into an area and among a people about which it understood little. Quote, the character of the Muslims is a peculiar one. They differ from every other race. The Koran is a mysterious book which enjoins all good Muslims to propagate its doctrines at the point of the sword. This race and religion has dominated this distant area of the world before this country was discovered, and their policy is straightforward. They hold by the sword. They are a people who can boast of being the only one of the powers of continental Europe whose capital has never been insulted by the presence of a foreign military force. End quote. These were considerations, Randolph judged, quote, worthy of attention before we embark in this project, the consequences of which no human eye can divine. The resolution was defeated. Clay submitted that the Commerce Clause in the Constitution implied the authority for federally funded internal improvements. Quote, one would suppose, Randolph responded, that if anything could be considered as settled by precedent and legislation, the meaning of the words of the Constitution must, before this time, have been settled. 
And yet, we are now gravely debating on what the word establish shall mean. Let us come to the plain common sense construction of the Constitution. The given power will not lie unless the power is specifically given. And even then, the states have concurrent power. These years of growing nationalism and activist courts saw Randolph despair over the fate of the Constitution. I do not stop here, sir, he said on one occasion, to argue about the constitutionality of this bill. I consider the Constitution a dead letter. You may entrench yourself in parchment to the teeth. The sword will find its way to the vitals of the Constitution. I have no faith in parchment, sir. I have no faith in the abracadabra of the Constitution. I have faith in the power of that commonwealth of which I am an unworthy son, a fig for the Constitution. In the ever-whirling kaleidoscope of political alliances, Randolph now grew increasingly acceptable in the camps of old enemies. A stunning reversal of judgment came from atop a mountain in central Virginia. Thomas Jefferson declared Randolph, quote, one of my companions in sentiment, and listed him with Madison, Monroe, and Macon, quote, all good men and true of primitive principles. Randolph's increased popularity led to his election to the U.S. Senate. He resigned his House seat and strolled into the ornate Senate chamber on December 26, 1825. Presiding over the Senate was newly elected Vice President John C. Calhoun. Any hopes that a change in locale might work a change in Randolph were immediately dispelled. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, he said to Calhoun, I mean Mr. President of the Senate, and would-be President of the United States, which God in his infinite mercy avert. <laughs> Randolph's brief Senate career was highlighted by his duel with Secretary of State Henry Clay. During an acid-tongued speech delivered on March 30, 1826, Randolph dubbed John Quincy Adams and Clay, quote, the Puritan and the Blackleg. The implication was clear. Adams of Massachusetts was the Puritan, Clay the blackleg, an epithet smacking of theft and corruption usually reserved for only the most vile swindlers and cheats. In a career of going too far, Randolph had exceeded himself. Clay's response was swift, and Randolph accepted the dual challenge. I prefer to be killed by Clay, he said, to any other death. The duel was set for the first private spot after the new toll bridge and Little Falls Bridge. Though dueling was illegal in Virginia, Randolph insisted on the location. Only Virginia soil, he said, was worthy to receive his blood. The men exchanged two shots apiece. Clay's second passed through one of Randolph's outer cloaks, which is here in this building, by the way, if you, if you want to see it. Randolph moved off his mark and advanced toward his opponent. Mr. Clay, he said, you owe me a coat. I am glad, Clay responded, the debt is no greater. Randolph's Senate career ended shortly thereafter, but he walked away from one legislative body and into another one as a delegate to the Virginia Constitutional Convention of 1829. This convention would in many ways represent all that he had fought for and against in his public life. The Virginia Constitution of 1776 was to Randolph the perfect expression of ordered liberty. It vested powers and the planters of the eastern part of the state by apportioning legislative representation by counties, not by population. Thus, the eastern section, with numerous small counties, exercised political domination over the western part with its fewer larger counties. As the western section of the state increased in population, calls for a revised apportionment scheme increased as well. The west wanted apportionment based on white population, which would ensure a power shift in its favor within 20 years. The convention assembled in Richmond on October 5, 1829, and included James Madison, James Monroe, John Marshall, John Tyler, four Virginia governors, seven U.S. senators, 11 judges, and 15 members of Congress. But even among such a constellation, the Richmond Daily Dispatch reported, quote, the man who commanded the most interest of all, to whom every eye was turned and whose slightest motion was watched with intense anxiety, was John Randolph. Randolph wore black crepe on his hat and arm in mourning for the old Constitution. When he rose to speak against the new apportionment plan, the, 
The uh, Daily Dispatch reported, quote, a crowd poured in like the water of the oceans when the dike gives way. As long as I have had any fixed opinions, Randolph began, quote, I have been in the habit of considering the Constitution of Virginia under which I have lived for more than half a century with all its faults and failings as the very best Constitution, not for Japan, not for China, not for New England, not for Old England, but for this, our ancient Commonwealth of Virginia. He did not, as a matter of principle, oppose changes to the Constitution, but, quote, the grievance must be vital or rather deadly in its effect. Its magnitude must be such as will justify prudent and reasonable men in taking the always delicate, often dangerous step of making innovations in their fundamental law. The reformers, Randolph argued, had met none of the prerequisites. Their motive was the spirit of innovation, the principle, quote, that numbers and numbers alone are to regulate all things in political society. Practical problems, he, could, he continued, could not be solved by the application of such abstract theories. Quote, for changes in the ordinary law of the land do not always operate as the drawer of the bill may have anticipated. Then he condensed in two sentences, 30 years of standing against the world. Quote, governments are like revolutions. You may put them in motion, but I defy you to control them after they are in motion. <coughs> Having deposed one king, he argued, the reformers are now clamoring for another. King whom, he asked, king numbers. These numbers would, quote, oppress, harass, and plunder at pleasure. Again, displaying the precedence that marked so many of his speeches, Randolph predicted the result of unchecked will and appetite, something he could not, not name but only describe, the welfare state. He had heard a strange notion, he said, that the government was, quote, not only to attend to the great concerns which are its province, but it must step in and ease individuals of their natural and moral obligations. He dismissed this pernicious notion, saying, quote, look at that ragged fellow staggering from the whiskey shop. Where are his children? Running about, ragged, idle, ignorant, fit candidates for the penitentiary. Why is all this so? Ask the man and he will tell you, oh, the government has undertaken to educate my children for me. My neighbor there who is so hard at work, he is taxed to support mine, end quote. Then came the defiant blast against abstract equality. Quote, I would not live under king numbers. I will not be his steward nor make him my taskmaster. I would obey this principle of self-preservation, a principle we find even in brute creation in flying from this mischief. Randolph's message, change is not reform, resonated. The apportionment issue was settled by dividing the state into four sections, with each section receiving the same number of representatives. Thus, the West gained representation, but the East authority remained greater than its population. Randolph predictably voted against the new Constitution. Randolph's chronically bad health finally caught up with him after the convention. He served briefly for 28 days as minister to Russia, but returned home a very old 60. When his end came, he uttered a single word, cloaked with echoes of his past, remorse. I would not die in Washington, Randolph once groused, be eulogized by men I despise, and buried in the congressional burying ground. For the most part, his wishes were granted. He was buried at Roanoke, just a few paces from his front door, under a tall pine. His face was turned westward at his direction so he could keep an eternal eye on Henry Clay. <laughs> when Congress reconvened, more than a month went by before Randolph's passing was acknowledged. His successor, Thomas T. Bolden, rose on February 11, 1834, to explain, quote, the reason why Mr. Randolph's death was not here announced. These words had barely passed Bolden's lips when he collapsed and died. <laughs> One is tempted to conclude that Randolph really did not want to be eulogized by Congress. 
1879, Randolph's remains were removed to Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. His final resting place is on the most elevated point overlooking the James. Locals joshed that the rumblings heard from that quarter were not passing coal trains, <laughs> but Randolph turning over in his grave at the latest political outrage. The joke elicited knowing laughter, later slight grins, and finally quizzical looks as Randolph's memory faded into historical twilight. In the 20th century, most historians reduced Randolph to the Jeffersonians' era public enemy. Dumas Malone judged him, quote, a weird figure and an odd character, willful, capricious, neurotic, displaying excesses of arrogant belligerency, explained in terms of modern psychology as an overcompensation for his lack of virility. A chorus of writers dismissed Randolph's actions, words, and policy positions as resentment of Jefferson, jealousy of Madison, and a host of eccentricities and temper. Russell Kirk demurred. Wisely or not, Kirk wrote, Randolph would not bend before the demands of the hour, as did Jefferson, nor would he alter his convictions, as did Calhoun. He grew more intense in his beliefs and more biting in their expression. Still, the chasm remains wide, with judgments on Randolph ranging from, quote, the most singular great man in American history, Russell Kirk, to Jacksonian historian Robert Remini's observation that he, quote, descended from cloud cuckoo land. <laughs> and what did Randolph say? I am content, he wrote in 1806, to let my public conduct speak for itself. Randolph's conduct has spoken for itself, but it has left history to wonder if he was a dedicated man of principle, a foolish hundred percenter, or merely an irritant with a political death wish. Always there is the phrase, I love liberty, I hate equality. Yet there were others who shared Randolph's beliefs and who did not consign themselves to political exile. So the question plagues and pursues, why did Randolph? Emotion, eccentricity, and passion provide easy answers, but these traits did not drive him away from the political establishment. They were merely the spice that made the separation so spectacular. Opposition to Jefferson, hatred of Madison, disappointment in Monroe were results, not causes. To find the answer, one must look beyond the pyrotechnics and discern the causes of his trajectory from the pattern of his life. In detailing the desired traits of a president, Randolph listed, quote, integrity, firmness, great political experience, sound judgment and strong common sense, ardent love of country and of its institutions, unshaken political consistency in the worst of times, and manners, if not courtly, at least correct. Though attributing these characteristics to a model president, they were precisely the traits to which Randolph aspired and required of others. He cherished, quote, the manly, straightforward spirit and manner that characterized free men, just as he abhorred, quote, the rule of inversion, nothing simple, nothing open, fair, or candid, all mystery, plot, and indirection. Wisdom, moderation, and firmness not only lifted individuals from mediocrity, they also form the failsafe for free government. Quote, without morals and a due sense of religion, he wrote, a free government cannot stand, be the form of it whatever it may. If I could see something like the old spirit of independence restored among us, open, honest, frank expression of opinion concerning public men and public measures, I should have some hope. Having tested these absolutes from farmhouse to courthouse to statehouse, Randolph resolved to ever stand on them. To Randolph, every political issue touched on the nature of the human soul. That soul, he believed, best flourished in a state of liberty. Any action, no matter how trivial, that diminished liberty had to be opposed. Politics was the instrument by which liberty was secured. He did not believe the freeholders of Virginia sent him to Washington to pass bills, gain seniority, or accept half a loaf. His purpose, their purpose, was only to secure freedom. Contending on the plane of such high ideals, victory or defeat, as defined in political terms, was never a consideration. Quote, I challenge any man, he dared his contemporaries and the court of history, to put his finger upon any vote or act of mine that contravenes the liberty of the citizen, or to show the vote given by me that tends to abridge the rights of the states, the franchises of the citizen, or even to add to his burdens in any shape." End quote. There is no need to look. No such act will be found. 
Thus, it was not eccentricity or personal peaks or drugs or insanity that placed Randolph in obstinate opposition to freedom-diminishing policies. In the omnipresent struggle in political life between principle and pragmatism, Randolph unhesitatingly and repeatedly chose principle. Like an actor in an annual Greek tragedy, Randolph repeatedly played the prophet, warning of the consequences of deviating from first principles. Words he wrote near the end of his life demand a response from his political posterity. Quote, I could not have believed that the people would so soon have shown themselves unfit for free government. It was my privilege as a biographer to be associated with John Randolph for more than 10 years. I found him as exasperating and endearing, as inspiring and frustrating, as did most of his contemporaries. In my mind's eye, however, he will ever be standing on the house floor, whip in hand, ghastly appearance attracting and repelling, shrill words piercing the conscience of foe and friend as freedom's greatest advocate. The embodiment of Ephesians 6.13 Having done all to stand, stand. Thank you. Randolph uh, apparently had mixed feelings and mixed views on slavery. Could you comment on his views on slavery? Well, you're correct. They are mixed and they are contradictory, as were the views of most in that era. That's why I gave it an entire chapter instead of sprinkling it through the book. I felt, as he said, he let his conduct speak for himself. Uh, Randolph opposed the slave trade. Uh, he did not buy or sell slaves himself. He kept his, his slaves that he had inherited uh, um, upon the deaths of his uh, brothers, but he took no active role in trying to end it while he was alive. Uh, his stepfather, St. George Tucker, uh, proposed uh, a gradual uh, abolition um, that went nowhere in the Virginia General Assembly. Randolph supported that. Randolph did free all of his slaves in his will and gave them each land in what is now Ohio, uh, which back then was Virginia and owned by Randolph. Uh, they never took it. Uh, they went there and were met with uh, beatings and uh, intolerance in Ohio and came back and filed a lawsuit which lingered until about 1917. So uh, it, it's fairly typical. Uh, he, he lamented the fact that uh, he had them, had slaves, but felt that uh, at least if I have them, I'm going to treat them right. Uh, when they were manumitted at his death, back then in the, in the statistics they used to mark whether or not there were physical, any physical signs on the slaves, and none of Randolph's had any physical marks on them. Um, so it, it's the typical, I think, uh, indifferent record of most Virginians of that era. Thank you for your remarks uh, and your book. Uh, look forward to reading it. Um, on the matter of the tertium quids, um, was that a formal political movement, uh, and is there any direct connection between the quids and their philosophy and ultimately the Democratic Party of uh, Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. The quids were never really organized. There was about eight of them. Um, the, 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 old, the old Republicans, they call themselves, uh, who, who stood with Randolph in opposition to Jefferson uh, and then in opposition to the war and, and tariffs. Randolph did define it on the floor. He stood up once and said, okay, you, you want to say we're quids, then we are quids, and, and, and used it as a term, but they never had a, any formal meetings or anything like that. Um, I, you know, Randolph supported Jackson uh, in uh, 1828, and Van Buren liked Randolph. They served together in the Senate. Uh, I'm not sure there was any embracing by Jackson of, of the quids. Um, uh, I really don't think so. And, of course, before Jackson's first term was over, uh, Randolph had broken with Jackson. Uh, Van Buren suggested that he be sent to, to Russia as a minister, partly because they wanted to pay off the, that wing of the Republican Party, and partly they wanted to get him out of the country. And, <laughs> and so diplomatic is not a word applied to John Randolph, and so his term uh, met with not much success, and he was only there 28 days, and his health broke in St. Petersburg. I, would, I guess to, to really direct your question is, is Jackson is closer in philosophy as far as 
taxes and, and the limited size of government to Randolph than, say, Jefferson and Madison, but I wouldn't say that, that it was uh, influential at all. Randolph-Macon was established in 1830. Originally, it was going to be called Henry Macon for Patrick Henry, whose home was in Scottstown near Ashland. At some point, that was changed to be called Randolph-Macon for John Randolph of Roanoke. In your research, how did that come about? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I stopped once, once he was buried and, uh, and didn't go. I, I truly don't know. I suspect, though, it would be the association with Macon, which was very close, much closer. I mean, uh, uh, Randolph had no association with, with Patrick Henry. I'm not sure Henry had much with Macon, but I really don't know. I was struck by the list of personalities you had on the back cover of your book, uh, comparisons with Newt Gingrich and uh, even Johnny Depp. I was wondering if you might want to. <laughs> I was wondering if you might add uh, Ron Paul to that. I was struck by the parallels between uh, uh, Ron Paul and some of the uh, congressional. Uh, his positions on things. I was just wondering, have you thought of anything, connection between those two? Um, I've thought of a lot of connections. I, um, uh, the quote on the back is from Richard Brookheiser, who's a senior editor of the National Review. I didn't compare to, uh, John Randolph to Newt Gingrich, but although I, I, I think it's a, a good quote. Um, I'm going to uh, rely on the subject of my first biography, Dr. Freeman, once Dr. Freeman uh, wrote about Robert E. Lee, he got hundreds of letters every year saying, what do you think Lee would think of this, and what do you think Lee would think of this? And Freeman always wrote and said that if a uh, biographer attempts to tell you what his subject would have done or thought in a situation he never faced, in fact, the biographer will end up telling him, telling you what he thinks. So I'm not going to presume to guess. Uh, I quote Randolph a lot in the book because I think you can compare, but certainly, uh, there are some principles that get talked about more than often and, uh, than not, and if you trace it back, I think it, it goes pretty clearly to John Randolph. Thomas Jefferson wouldn't think that, but <laughs> I do. Is there any evidence that uh, Mr. Randolph visited with his colleague Nathaniel Macon in Warren County, North Carolina? Uh, I, I don't recall any, but it wouldn't surprise me. Randolph was a, a great uh, equestrian and loved to get out and go places and, and do things when Congress wasn't in session. So if there was a racetrack or a saloon near Nathaniel Macon's <laughs> house, I'm sure he went. Uh, they spent most of the time, uh, they roomed together in Washington. So that's where they spent the most time together. They, the first, uh, I think, eight years or so, uh, they were roommates. <laughs> 